Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. And today, what else, Richard? President Donald Trump. So, I mean, you and I don't need to be cute about this. I'll just give you the first question. What was your reaction? We're taping this the day after the election to well, the news um, that Donald Trump will be the 45th president of the United States. It was not as much astonishment as other people. I mean, I have a peculiar way of doing polling. What I do is I have the Epstein meter in the middle of my head and I ask myself whether I'm getting hotter or colder on a particular candidate. And I assume that the rest of the world will move in exactly the same proportions that I do and that there'll always be some voters at the margin. It's a very cheap system and it actually has some reliability. And so what happens is you're trying to figure out what the sentiments are. And it's very clear that two things at the end, I think, made me believe believe that it would start the shift. One was that the renewed interest in the Hillary email account, both the investigation letter and the exoneration letter, I think, actually were very bad for Hillary, including the second one. And the reason is it just brought back attention to her and all the kinds of irregularities. And people would now ask the question, is this yet another dive by Jim Comey or is this an honest statement? And besides, it's not just the server, it's wiping servers, it's the Clinton Foundation. Uh, so it put her into the highlight. The second thing is I do think at the end uh, Donald Trump changed strategies. He shut the Twitter machine off at night. He stopped talking about the legs of his girl, various ex-girlfriends and so forth, uh, didn't file any defamation suits. He actually started to sound somewhat substantive, which meant that people started to ignore him, which in this particular case was a good thing. And so if you put the two things together, uh, my mind started to say to me he's looking a little bit stronger uh, because what happens is his sort of wild and untamable nature seems to be reduced, whereas the kind of desperate ways in which the Democrats were trying to discredit Comey made it appear that she was now part of the shrill set and that, in fact, would hurt her. So when it came out, uh, my sense was I thought it would be pretty close. And um, then when I saw the early vote and that he was actually up, notwithstanding the fact that there generally tends to be big urban liberal cities report first, I thought to myself, he actually has a chance of winning. And sure enough, as you watch the states roll in, uh, this man is a genius. He managed to win five states by small margins and lose California and New York by a landslide. So he has a slight deficit in the popular vote, but he got every single state that he needed to win. Uh, this guy should be a billiards player or a poker player, given the way he handled the situation. Okay. So let's consider the Trump administration in prospect and take you through a couple of issue areas. The judiciary, obviously, is going to be on the front burner. Uh, we now know that Merrick Garland's prospects for the Supreme Court are extinguished. So Richard, Trump's choice for that position, it not only sends a signal to the country about what kind of people he wants in the judiciary, it also sends a signal to sitting justices on the court about what kinds of people may succeed them. How, how should he play this? Well, I mean, I think he's played it right. Uh, he First of all, he managed to get himself a list first of 10, then another list of 10 or 11 more. And I think recently he made an announcement that that was the list to which he was going to look when it came to this appointment. And this is a not unimportant thing. Many people, myself included, were very um, concerned that this was all a strategic maneuver. And I actually signed a letter joined with other originalists, even though I may not be an originalist myself, saying he just can't be counted on and keeping his word. 
And the moment he starts to keep his word on that one, or at least makes it indicate that he's going to do so, all of a sudden something starts to look like it's much more in control. Uh, the next question that people ask is, well, who gave him the information about that list? And is this person going to be available to do all the intermediate appointments? Trump, I think, is in a very good position to make a decent showing on this issue. The uh, Republicans have been shut out for eight years. They have a large number of very thoughtful and intellectual people who work in the party and through the federal society and other organizations. Um, so he can get, you know, 50 or 100 very able people and put them up relatively quickly. And I don't think that the Democrats are going to be able to filibuster them all, nor will they want to. And they certainly can't play the maneuver that everybody else has played, which is if you're in the opposition party, you simply don't call a hearing and let the nomination die. Uh, so all in all, I mean, my sense on this issue is slightly more encouragement than I, I might have had before. I wish I could see more bomb-throwing libertarians like myself who are willing to take on fundamental pieces of the New Deal, but I don't think that fits with judicial temperament at this particular point in time, and I think the way the constitutional struggle is going to have to go, it's going to be incremental, step-by-step kinds of situations in which this, that, or the other excess gets struck down, and then you slowly try to move back um, from what it had been at this peak under the Obama years. So, you know, you want to attack some of the stuff with respect to labor unions, the Friedrichs case comes up again, and all of a sudden, you know, compelled dues to unions run into First Amendment difficulties, which might not have been the case. There was a movement in the Seventh Circuit by Judge Diane Wood, which I thought was quite incorrect, saying, you know, if you decide to impose a right-to-work law as a state, you have to pay just compensation to the union for lost dues. That's dead on arrival in the current Supreme Court, no matter what the lower courts start to do. And so I think, in effect, that this is actually something which can um, move in a sensible, incremental fashion. And if he appoints good people, and he will certainly have more than one appointment, uh, probably two or three in this particular term, it could really make a huge difference in the life of the Supreme Court. Economics. You've spent almost the entirety of Barack Obama's eight years lamenting his unwillingness to embrace the market. I think our listeners know broadly where you stand on economic issues, so why don't we tackle it this way? What are the priorities? If you only get a few bites at the apple, where do you want to concentrate your energies right now when it comes to economic policy? Yeah, I, I wrote an open letter to Donald Trump. I've written two now, and I'll probably write a third on foreign affairs. And I think the position that I staked out there is the correct one. Uh, there are two ways in which you can try and revive growth in the United States, one which will fail and one which will work. Now, the one that will fail is to start getting really tough on foreign trade and try to pull down the barriers. What that will mean is we will lose export markets markets on the one hand, and we'll get retaliation on other hands, and we will essentially create a domestic economy which will look like smooth hawley It's a complete disaster. Donald Trump simply has to understand when people lose jobs in a Milwaukee, Wisconsin, they're not all going to China. And even if some went to China, if the situation at home is bad, uh, what's going to happen is you'll lose the job anyway to another state in Tennessee, or they'll just be extinguished altogether. So he has to get off of that fixation. And it's easy for him him to do so, he simply does not begin by trying to fight treaty negotiations on NAFTA or anything else. The thing that he can really do is to try to make America more productive. And that means sort of unpacking the entire system of regulations and restraints that the Obama administration seems to put on. I regard the administration as intellectually delusional. It seems to think that all macroeconomic issues are to be handled by the Fed and all the minor issues, whether they have to do with joint employers in the union statute or an increase in 
the salary in the wages covered by the world uh, of the Fair Labor Standards Act, they don't seem to have any resource effects in his area. In mine, it's exactly the opposite. What you have to do is to go through the Clinton playbook, and you do it in two ways. First, you look at everything which is done by essentially a letter or guidance or some kind of a thing that you can unilaterally repeal, and there are lots of that stuff coming out, and you just simply take all of them on January 21st, they're gone. And then the second thing you do is you understand that the administrative agencies that make these decisions are three, two in favor of the president's party, and when you start taking control over those, what you try to do is unpack the worst of the regulations that come out of the um, environmental stuff with the uh, uh, Obama administration. And so you rethink the Clean Power Act, which is a mistake, the Clean Water Plan. Uh, You certainly look very hard at much of the stuff with respect to Dodd-Frank regulations. You give approval to the Keystone Pipeline and so forth. Um, You just really can move lots of things in that way. And at this particular point, you'll get relatively little foreign objection. And in fact, with Keystone, you'll actually get a lot of support from the Canadians who don't regard us as a reliable trading department. And then you're on the way. And once that starts to happen, the jobs will return. And then there'll be much less pressure on you to try to do something silly in the foreign markets um, with respect to our various trade agreements. It's absolutely vital uh, that he understand what's going on and return slowly, grudgingly, but inexorably in favor of the standard Republican position, which has been broadly supportive of free trade. Richard, in the less than 24 hours that have passed between when the race was called for Trump and when we're talking today, we've, we've already seen Mitch McConnell, the majority leader in the Senate, come out and say that repealing and replacing Obamacare is at the top of the agenda. Tricky issue here, though, of course, when you're talking about all the people who've received coverage already under the law. So how should the GOP think about approaching that? Well, the first thing is exactly right. You think of what you want the end state to be, and then you have to think about the kind of transitions. But the first point, what you do is you um, essentially repeal that part of the statute, which is yet to go into systematic effect, which is all the restraints that you want to put on the employer mandate, uh, which is the majority of the covered workers. The harder part is going to be the individual mandate, where in effect what happens is you've given people huge subsidies for certain kinds of um, coverages, um, and these coverages, I think if you actually add it up, it's something like about $45 billion a year. And trying to resurrect the private market is going to be very difficult under these circumstances because it large portions of it was shut down. And so I think what you try to do is to develop a transitional strategy that works something as follows. What you do is you liberalize all of the particular rules currently put in by regulations. You change the definition of the maximum allowance that you have for administrative expenses um, and allow them to include things that work like like uh, agency fees for people signing things up. The administration says it's covered by the 15% cap. It's crazy, so you do that. Then you look at the various coverages thing, and you have a rule which says anything which is not provided by a premium uh, private plan in the voluntary market is not required under any of these particular programs, so you get rid of all of that. And by the time you're done with this and a bunch of other things, you're now 80% the way there. Then if you could get the confidence of the private companies, what you do is you give people once and final farewell subsidy in order to go to another plan. If you know what the subsidy is for a given person, what you say is the first year you go into a private plan, you're going to get the full subsidy. The second year, you get 50%. The third year, you're gone. And I think you could wean people from the program by doing them that way. 
The other thing I think you ought to do is to try to look at the kinds of state plans that actually work. My favorite, and I don't know all the details, but I think it works pretty well, is the Healthy Indiana Plan, uh, where the basic conceit is that what we do is we give you a cash supplement to handle the financial stuff, but we don't tell you what kinds of policies that you ought to buy from what kinds of companies. And what happens, therefore, is the entire administrative structure on Obamacare, the reviews, the checks, uh, the various insurance regulations and so forth, the huge controversies that you get over the coverage of contraceptives and other issues, all of that stuff kinds of disappears. And if that plan works, you try to generalize it, and now the transition is going to be a little bit easier because you actually have a way to go. What you don't try to do in this current environment is to say, look, we think markets work, subsidies are utterly irrelevant, we're not going to give them to anybody ever because that's a bridge too far. It turns out that you'll run into a huge buzzsaw of public resistance on that, and there's no need to do it. You can get 80% of what you want with a sensible subsidy program, and that's what you ought to aim for, rather than trying to go cold water into a program which is sure to fail. So if you do these things, it can be done, and he's got control in both houses. He's got more control for the Republicans than any time since I think it's Herbert Hoover. He didn't do so well in 1928. Perhaps we'll do better today. What about structural changes in government, Richard. The president is the head of an executive branch that has been growing in size and power for a while now. Are If you're in Trump's shoes, are you thinking about big changes on an institutional basis? Well, I would. I mean, if somebody gave it to me, one of them is, I think, a gimme right now. Um, if you looked at that recent decision that involved the consumer finance operation headed by Richard Cordray, it says that when you're dealing with the Consumer Fraud Protection Bureau, whatever it's called, uh, the head of it is replaceable by the president. Well, you replace him. Um, in fact, you could put Daffy Duck in there for all I care. The important thing is not to let somebody like Richard Cordray run the show. And then what you do is you propose for Congress for that situation. You completely gut that agency along with much of the whole Dodd-Frank board and go back to the commission model that we have. Once you're in the commission model, my recommendation is as follows. You always separate the adjudicative function on the one hand from the enforcement function on the other. Uh, So I do not want the National Labor Relations uh, Board to uh, basically adjudicate cases and then work with the prosecutor in front of their own situation. I want all of those people to be out of the administrative structure uh, and to be a sort of quasi judicial independent bodies, uh, much on the order of the tax court or the bankruptcy court, nine-year terms, rotating panels and so forth, and then keep the enforcement separate. I, I think if you start to do those things, it would be fine. And then what do you do with respect to rules? Here's, I think, the first thing you have to do. You must address the deference problem which is the current law says if it's a federal agency interpreting a federal regulation under a case called Our Against Robbins, you give them essentially carte blanche to do the dumbest things ever done. That's what got us into trouble um, with the transgender uh, type situation in the separate bathrooms. You should never have given that degree of discretion to them. You want to do the same thing with the Chevron doctrine when it comes to an administrative interpretation of a statute. Uh, two reforms should make an enormous difference. One is if the government puts out a, di- a guide and it says it's really not enforceable, even though internally you're bound by it, somebody should be able to take them to court right away and to challenge it as ultra-virus. And then secondly, you want a fundamental structural reform which says all questions of law should be decided by courts de novo, that is, without deference to earlier organization. And that's simply a reinforcement of the provision which is already contained but widely ignored in Section 706 of the Administrative Procedure Act. You make those kinds of changes and it's transformed. 
transformative. The last thing, of course, you have to do is to get good people to run these kinds of agencies. And my view is you look at people like Wheeler sitting there in the Federal Communications Commission and so forth. Terrible. You take somebody like Josh Wright, who's really smart and ought to be given a very high position in the next administration. And what he does to the antitrust enforcement under the FTC through suasion is a vast improvement of everything that happened before. And you need to do more things like that. So the last thing I'll ask you, we've talked before on the show about the changes that we've been witnessing in political culture, the the lack of faith in government, the sort of erosion of soft norms. And of course, when you're in an election cycle, all that stuff is is somewhat speculative until you get the results in. And now we know them, Richard. So what does the 2016 election tell you about where American political culture is at? Um, it tells you that it's deeply divided. I mean, the number of people who go into mourning because it turns out that Donald Trump has been elected has been very large. Um, I think that some of it is overstated. Um, it also shows that on the other side, there's a deep resentment. Um, if you want me to put the situation, this is the way the two sides describe each other. The aggressive modern left thinks that everybody who's against them is somebody who in the words of Martin Castro is either racist, sexist, Islamophobic, homophobic or something else. And they just have to back down on that. And on the other side, with actually somewhat greater justification, the people who work in the heartland, you know, who run small businesses and raise their children and go to church and so forth, um, they feel as though they are disrespected, their opinions are not heard, that all the fancy intellectuals in the East simply ignore them. And that's why they turned out in such droves. And I think the first move on this particular situation has to come from the left. I think what it has to do is to tone down that particular kind of rhetoric and seek accommodation. So let me give you just one that I think should actually work. I would think it would be insane for Donald Trump or any Republican to say, we want to revisit the same-sex marriage issue, um, which is now resolved by constitutional law. Uh, The trend in that way is so strong, it'd be silly to do it. The Republicans want that off the table. But on the other hand, I think what they ought to do is to be pretty insistent that we're not going to vilify those kinds of individuals who refuse to serve certain kinds of situations because they're against their religious beliefs and conscience. I don't even think you have to go with respect to the general non-discrimination law and competitive markets. I'm principle in favor of repeal of that, but it's never come up as a serious issue and nobody wants to fight it. Um, But I do think on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, um, uh, it's an important thing for the right. It's an important thing for the evangelical Christians. It's an important thing for general political political liberty to go back to the accommodation, which essentially had huge 95% plus support on when it was proposed in the Clinton administration in 1993. And the way in which you try to get the left to go back on that is to say, you're the guys who moved on this particular thing. We don't want to go one inch beyond what had happened there. This is not a covert action to get rid of the Civil Rights Act. Now, what do you do with the Civil Rights Act? I have one sentence suggestion. Do not use the business necessity disparate impact test, which is massively effusive against any firm or government agency that has a bona fide affirmative action program, which is most of them. And you don't have to repeal anything. It just changes the locus of enforcement and means that the civil rights people are not going to be constantly on your back demanding that you file compliance reports, all of which ought to be scrapped in just about every area. All right. First in a long series of conversations we're going to be having on these issues, Richard. Thank you for listening to the show. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. 
This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.